Namaste, Susan Ozu. Namaste. Welcome to Health at Home podcast. Thank you for having me. And uh, we are going to do pure end-to-end English podcast. Fantastic. For the first time. And uh, you are first Westerner, I think, in our podcast. And uh, definitely a first Aussie. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so I hope you will do a little bit of discount by not having that strong Australian accent so that we can have a little simpler English for everyone. I can't guarantee. You can guarantee. <laughs> yeah, okay. I will try. Okay. So it's so nice to have you um, as a, a person with so much of a positivity, an outlook on a life after such a tormenting um, spiral of uh, disease like tumor, uh, more so that it was in brain, you know. Those kind of things are every day because we as a human, we all, always have this suffering. Probably you are the first guest of my podcast where I'm attempting to do it in a natural flow. There is no, no resource in it. Because as a doctor, I don't need it to understand patients. So I'm going to try to narrate your story from the prospect of a doctor for a lay person where they will be watching wherever they're from. How a brain tumor survivor can see the journey. And there can be so much of a similarity and templates anywhere in the world because our all blood is same. Like we have like all these bones and skins and muscles are all about that uh, nature. It's not about where you're from, where I'm from, or where anyone else is from. So it's for everyone. Uh, whoever wants to see a success and a motivation on being a survivor. And uh, outdoing that is not winning. You know, being in a flow and being resilient is something, uh, very different characteristics, you know. That characteristics are often discounted by humans. You know, it's our nature. Like what is what is what we can get is once once we don't have it we kind of go for it or long for it or miss it. So I think like coffee, you know, if we don't have a coffee tomorrow morning, it will be terrible. <laughs> Life such worse than a tumor. <laughs> worse than a tumor, yeah. So the thing is, the way we are looking at life is so much discounted. The privileges of normality, the privileges of health, and the expectation. Exactly. So by profession, you are a linguist mm. and you're going to judge me about my language and my no. grammaticals Not after this podcast. But the thing <laughs> is, we're going to go with uh, your uh, yourself, where you're from, how you landed in Nepal. Uh, you got a beautiful family. you got a beautiful daughter. Chaya, Thank you. And an amazing, amazing husband, a supportive guy. And Nepal's probably... Uh, best drummer and I know Sanjay Dai for long and we're a fan of what he does and you do and everything around it but also I can see uh, you as a foreigner you know as a westerner as an expat you have your own kind of stories you know settled in Nepal so there are a lot of things about your persona so I would request you to tell us about yourself you know well, shall I start with how I came to Nepal? You tell us where are hmm. you from and what are your families like and you came here and you loved so much <coughs> that you settled down here. Mm-hmm. So it's so beautiful, right? Yeah. yeah. So I am from Townsville in Australia. Right. Actually, I'm from Magnetic Island, which is an island off the coast of Townsville. And when I was growing up, my dad used to come here. Oh, And he'd bring back suitcases full of trinkets and weird and wonderful things and black and white photos of Tamil back in the day. Like, and yeah, it was intriguing. So my first visit to Nepal was in 97 with my dad on a family holiday. When? 1997. 97? Yeah. So your dad used to travel frequently back and forth in Nepal? He liked to go trekking. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So he tracked many places in the world, but always coming back to Nepal. Okay. So um, he also met some people here, hmm. including Gopal Yonjan, actually. Oh. And then um, his wife Renton had a trekking company. So yeah, that's how. Yeah. That's how that connection was made. So when I came over here with him, um, 
I came back a few times and in 2001 I moved here to start Jasmandu with people, um, some Nepali friends I had in Cadenza. I don't know if you know. I know. Cadenza. I know yeah. so, and Rinchen Yonjan helped us a lot. Okay. Um, so, so that's how I came here. And then I met Sunday, Sanjay the year after I arrived because Moksh was the venue. Okay. And Sanjay was arranging the music at Moksh for Niraka, who owns Moksh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we fell in love and were married in 2005. Okay. And so 2001, I moved here. It's now 2003. So I've been here 22 years. Wow. Yeah. So your uh, involvement with Jazzmandu, that's, uh, so you brought that idea. No, it was me and my Nepali partners. So yeah. I had met Cadenza in 97 and in 2000, they came to Australia to play in my dad's jazz festival. And oh. then Novin was saying to me, we should, I'd like <clears> to do this more. I need to go overseas and nothing's happening in Nepal. The insurgency was happening. And I said, well, it's not really sustainable just to go overseas once again. Why don't we do it in Nepal? So we both decided. And so, yeah, it was very much a joint project and I don't really have any experience in it. And uh, we just sort of made it work. And yeah. now he runs it still. I stepped out after two years. And, of course, he has the vested interest in running it. Yeah. And he's brilliant at it. And, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, as a, as a franchise, I say... Uh, jazz Mandu has put us in a world jazz map. Yeah. Yeah, in certain way. And thank you for bringing us to, you know, bring that idea. And interestingly, your dad does it in Australia. Yeah. yeah. So he, does he still do it? He's passed away. Oh. And which is part of the story of my tumor as well. Because, yeah, yeah but he came over and emceed for the first one. And Rinchen was involved from the beginning. And even Vidya, I don't know if you remember Vidya. She was a jazz singer here, passed away. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, mother of... Uh, Yannick. Yannick, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're friends. We met the other day in a farmer's market. Yeah. So that is old yeah. news. That's the history. Yeah. So uh, I met Sanjay through Moksh and yeah. then being a venue for Jasmine Dew. Yeah. And then we became friends because I was living with someone who was making a documentary about 1974 AD ah. called Ector. Ah. So, yeah. So the thing is um, that how you find being in... Nepal, how, how has it been? Your supportive families, of course, is a Love it. Love, 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 love it. I mean, since 97, I, I've traveled many places. I think more than 20 countries. Yeah. And I've liked places more. I like Sri Lanka a lot. I, I like Belize a lot. And I like Turkey. But when I leave, I don't cry. Yeah. The first time I left Nepal, I was literally bawling on the airplane. And I can't explain why. Wow. But I just felt such a strong connection. And... I've heard other foreigners say this, and it sounds um, a little bit trite or cliched, but yeah, this strong connection, this feeling like I need to be here. Is it? Yeah, that's how I've always And felt. I always feel like I have to be here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cliche. There you go. But the thing is, uh, when you think about getting this um, right, we need to have a lot of supportive uh, things uh -huh. to go right. Um, survival doesn't alone happen with a uh -huh. romance, you know, so you got to have a work, you need to have a purpose and you need to have a you know beautiful things to look forward to every day mm. and suddenly there was this uh, issue with you like your non-stop healthcare spirals like you know mm. they're coming uh, tell us about that incident when when you got entrapped into that uh, whole so mess. in 2018 um, I was having this visual distortion it was like a jagged line of light in my eye and it would last for about 10 minutes, maybe 15. And uh, then I felt maybe a little dissociated, but not too much. But not. sometimes I was working and I played with it. I was like, okay, can I keep working? And I realized I couldn't quite edit the document as well. And I was like, what is this that's going on? So I went to see Dr. Suman. Mm -hmm. Papa and we discussed it and the question of whether it was a tumor or not did come up and he said there will be other symptoms if it is and so I can remember when I went away from that thinking there's no other symptoms and who has a brain tumor it's, it's so unlikely I'm not going to 
think about that. But I didn't put together all the symptoms because the other symptom I was having was loss of hearing in my right ear. And I just had a cold, so I thought that my ear was blocked from the congestion. And I was also having headaches. Uh, at, I was waking up at three in the morning with a headache, but I had hurt my neck in yoga. Oh. So I thought the headache was from that. And I thought I should go get a scan and find out what's going on with that. But it was kind of manageable. If I got up and walked around at East, it was gone. But I know now in retrospect, like if you get a headache in the day, that's one thing. But if you wake up in the middle of the night with a headache, it's indicative of a tumour. It could be something else, but it's it's one of the signs. Yeah. So I didn't link all the symptoms, although Dr. Suman told me, look out for other symptoms. I didn't put it all together. So in March of 2018, my father passed, so I went back to Australia. And while I was there, I went to my GP and said, I'm having this hearing loss. And he sent me to a hearing specialist. And in Australia, all healthcare is pretty much free. Um, sometimes you have to pay a little bit to your GP on top of the what the government pays. But the hearing test wasn't, and it cost me $260. And I, at the end of it, they said, she can't hear in the right ear. And I went back to my GP going, I could have called, told you that. And I was a little bit like, yeah. <laughs> Why did you send me for the six months? He's like, okay, so it could be many things. Now you have to have a CT scan. So I went for that. And then on the Friday, I think it was, I was with my mom and I was just coming to my sister's place and he rang and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just walking into my house, my sister's house. He said, I need you to go for an MRI now. They're waiting for you at the Townsville General Hospital. Don't drive yourself and call me after. So I was terrified. I thought, oh, my God, what's happening? So I went and had the MRI, and then the next day I went in to see him, and he said, you have a brain tumour. And, uh, of course, my first – I stayed calm in the consultation. My sister was there, but when we went into the car, of course, I burst into tears. And then you, you mentioned Bolly, Dolly Bauzu. Um I was with her when she went through her cancer – Mm -hmm. treatment and she's very strong so I had noted at the time and I'd even labeled it the dolly method mm. the dolly method is when you don't know what to do because when something like this happens to you you panic and you freeze and your adrenaline's probably going you don't know what decision oh. so the dolly method is buy a plastic packet put every report in it and do what the doctors say, show up for the appointment. So you don't have to think of anything, actually. It's all done for you. Just buy the plastic packet. So on the way home, my, I said to my sister, please stop, I have to get a plastic packet. She said, what are you doing? Like, I just need a plastic packet because it was the only thing I could do at that point. There's nothing I could do. So um, I live in a – I'm from a very small town in Australia, but it's a regional centre, so they have a, a huge – hospital that services the whole of North Queensland and the Outback catchment, yeah? Okay. So this hospital had a neurosurgical unit set up with nobody oh going and no waiting list, so not like Sydney. So I saw the neurologist within two weeks and I had the operation the next month. Um, and my friend who is a doctor in Sydney said, no, 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 you can't have neurosurgery, you know, you can't have surgery in Townsville. And then she looked into this doctor and she came back to me and said, oh, my God, he's the best. You can totally have surgery in Townsville. Uh -huh. So I was able to do this in a place where I had a lot of support and, you know, it was a very well-resourced setting. setting. Yeah, so it was very good. So the first operation was in May and it took 10 hours. And then after that I was fine and they said to me, Unfortunately, you have to have a second operation. We didn't get the whole tumour. So I had a second operation in, I think it was July, June or July. And that was also 10 hours and they got nearly all of the tumour. Apparently the residuary won't ever bother me. And uh, it's a slow growing. So after the second tumour, I had facial palsy, which they had told me was a risk. And... My vocal cord was paralysed and with the facial palsy, your face droops 
And the effect of that is that you can't form the words properly on this side, so your speech will be slurred. But that was compounded by the fact that I couldn't make a closure with the vocal cords, so I couldn't get a word out anyway. It was a whisper. And I couldn't shut my eyes, so I had to put a patch on overnight and use eye drops a lot. So um, so you had a one side of a facial palsy. Yeah. Yeah. And a vocal cord palsy. And I couldn't um, swallow. And when I did swallow, I couldn't stop food entering the lungs. So they didn't want me to swallow. So they put a feeding tube in. So I was in hospital for, for five weeks in Australia with a feeding tube. And it was very... Five weeks. Five weeks. And there's a lot of support they give you. You have physio, you're in a recovery ward and there's a team of doctors coming to see you and occupational therapists, speech therapists, physiotherapists, dietitians, blah, 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 on and on and on. But you do get the feeling that you're on some sort of treadmill that you're not going to get off. Like they're managing all the care, but there's no one is telling you how fast how it long it will take or what's happening with the vocal cord. And one of the things, although the medical care in Australia was very good, I think in Townsville there's a shortage of ENTs, so I didn't see an ENT. So I didn't realise that it was permanently paralysed. Nobody in Australia told me that. They just did a fluoroscopy and different tests on swallowing, which identified that I wasn't able to swallow. Probably they knew it was paralysed, but I hadn't seen an ENT specialist. So after five weeks, my feeding tube fell out. And initially I was very upset because it's quite painful to put it back in. And I had told them it was getting loose, yeah. you know, so. Then a second later, I thought, oh, my God, I could go rogue. I could leave the hospital now. I'm, I'm off the feeding tube. Of course, I can't speak, eat or walk or, or even see properly, but they're small problems. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> Let's yeah. explore this idea. <laughs> so my younger sister had been making me smoothies to supplement the feeding tube and she's very particular. So she'd been weighing, measuring, researching what to put in. Yeah. She'd spoken to my dietitian. So this was already established and I had been having a smoothie a day. So I knew I could get some sort of liquid down. So my sister came in and met with the dietitian and they, I'd like to say discussed, but in reality they argued about it until my sister said, no, I believe that I'm giving her all the nutrition she needs. And so we agreed that I would leave the hospital. That's how did it feel to leave the hospital? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so today your, your, our conversation will be watched by your sister back home? Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. My and it's a magic yeah. in front of us. Fully 100% Susan that was before that incident, hmm. right? That one diagnosis, that one day, one instance, one, one call, you know, which transformed the whole flip of the life. Mm. I always ask this question to the people who have gone through that ordeal, mm. you know. What was it like? Was it like a world falling apart and all the questions crossing and flying in through your, you know? Do you mm. have a do you have a do you remember that incident when you first got that? This is brief. We're going to go on a stopping over on the milestones mm. of this uh, uh, disease timeline, you know? Mm. Because that milestones are something that we uh, explore, you know, when people get that news, we call it breaking news, mm. right? Uh, breaking bad news, you mm. know, something like uh, you're not prepared for it, right? You just got for a routine checkup, routine scan, and suddenly you come up with a report. But anticipation of the practitioner is like we expect there to be something, right? Mm. So we, we look at it from the prospect of will we find something? So our perspective of education is always about that and training is about that to find something. It's not patient, you know. Mm. You don't go to be found something. You know, you, do, you don't land up in a, a doctor's cabin to be diagnosed something. You just want to be better. You, you mm. just want... I mean, you want to be told that it's okay. It's you okay, worrying right? about nothing. Exactly. So the conversation mm. just flips around. So for us, it becomes choking. Like, you know, hey, Susan, listen, I think like we found something in your brain. Mm. 
And who was that? Who broke the news? How did it go? In Australia, the general practitioner delivers all that news. So the specialist might find it, but you deal with your GP, they call it. Right. So it was my GP and as a family doctor, we've, I've always seen that GP. Uh, and I put on a brave front in front of that GP. I think he was actually more shocked. Like, yeah, we he was scared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For me. And he didn't know how this was going to proceed because I don't think he'd ever had such a case. So we forget usually the uh, champions who actually has to deal with it. Yeah. The problem is like, yeah, we have a sister who actually did everything. There are other family members. But that breaking bad news is such a bad thing for us. You know, it's just terrible. For a doctor, you know, I mean, like it doesn't it doesn't go well. I mm -hmm. mean, to break that bad news is always so. I mean, you you said so uh, nice. It's so humbling that my doctor was panicking more than me because mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I I <coughs> me as a patient, I knew I was going through something, but then there should be something in it, and he will not be dealing with it. So this is like emotional burnouts for us, mm -hmm. for practitioners, you know. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I wanted to hit. Like, okay, mm. so there's a team of the professionals which went after you, like, you know, supporting all the time. Yeah, and yeah. this was quite amazing because I had been to doctors who'd said, oh, you're hearing losses, earwax. Yeah. And he was so thorough. Like he said, you have to do the hearing test and then you have to do a CT and then you have to do an MRI. And to go through that whole process when someone just says, oh, I've had a cold and I can't hear, that's quite you know, detailed and, and thorough. So congratulations to them for uncovering it. Mm. Among that them was also me. Yeah. Who had a chance to talk with Sanjay and I think I warned him on not missing out on the scan and yeah. a consultation with a neurologist. Yeah. And I think uh, I feel so good about it. I remember that. But at that time, I was really discounting all that advice. I, I remember Dr. Suman said, and you said, and, and I was like, ah, I don't have a brain tumor. Don't be ridiculous. I feel perfectly fine. So, yeah, you spoke to Sanjay. Yeah. But I did not take your advice. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean, but that's see, the thing is, for us, the justification or our, our integrity on our advices over the yeah. phone, uh, over the email, whatever we do, that is genuinely, um, see, this is my success too, you know, mm. or as a, as a, just one advice can matter not to go around mm. and, you know, just to keep on moving that, uh, you know, oh, I did this. Okay. But fine. even more than that, the advice that you gave for when we wanted to come home, that's what I will always remember. I'll never forget. And thank you so much because we came out of hospital we went home celebrated or i whispered because i couldn't talk <laughs> and then sanjay said what next you know we don't live here we were staying at a family friend's house my dad had passed away we didn't have uh, my daughter wasn't in school she was out of school for the few months that we were in australia and um sanjay said i, I want to take you home but the doctor's that were looking after me in Townsville said, well, well, you will need, and they listed a whole bunch of specialists that I would need. And Sanjay said, oh, I'll ring Dr. Bishal. So then he spoke to you yeah. and you reassured him that even though I couldn't eat, speak or walk or see properly, that I could come back to Nepal and you would help us yeah. access the things that we needed. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is what we talked about was like that transition care. You yeah, know, yeah. so the problem with our society is we are disfranchised mm -hmm. in the healthcare system with only hospital as an option. So my inherent struggle, even mm -hmm. this podcast is about communication and improvement and we can do a worldly affairs. You know, we cannot be staying beside and saying someone else going to do it. Mm -hmm. So the thing is what we did with health at home is basically bringing those things to people whom it matters. It might not matter to everyone, but as an education, you cannot open a school and have the world study in it. But there are multiple schools and millions of them teaching people to become educated. So it's something like that. So the initiative uh, itself uh, answers like what you said. And we definitely want to uh, bring this knowledge and consciousness that it is possible. And you come from a very organized mm. society like Australia, but there are handicaps too. Mm. 
And then there are um, disorganized society like ours, and we have confidence too. So there are, you know, there is a, there is a parallel on those kind of existence. But also at the same time, what I'm looking at is that's not only for you. Mm-hmm. That was not only for you. And when Sanjay talked to me, and I think like we talked for a while, and he was very nervous because Chai is going to school. She's young, and you're recovering. You don't. Uh, I don't know the trajectories, and uh, he's a lay person more so. And you, you, you're not a medical professional, so you cannot judge on that. And you really need a reliable person who can actually at least advise on what to get, where to get, who to get. And these things matter in people's life most because you cannot have doctor in your family every time. And that's some ridiculous uh, value proposition in society that if you don't have someone close, at least in developing countries like Nepal or you know other places, We've seen it always that you need your people to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. You need a good people to tell you what to do. You know, what, what matters most is the good people, <coughs> good advice, and a little bit of focus on what people is going through. And I think we just do that every day and it is, it is helping. And I, have a, I really feel privileged on the successes. Mm. I, it doesn't matter how many people we've touched life, how many families we touched life. Has we messed up things? Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, it's so sensitive. Do I really want to mess up things? Mm. Or do... So this profession has become bizarre. In a sense, like we love volume. You know, we love scale. We need to do things proper for every individual. You cannot go wrong. And then medical field has always been complicated because of that kind of issue. So it's so different like the way Australian healthcare system works and then uh, Nepali healthcare system works, right? It's all private. Go pay, 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 you know? Call, 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 call. Friends, families, mm-hmm. network, this, that. But when you see, you, you probably didn't have to call in Australia. What was the major differences that you find? To Even today you feel like, oh, these mm-hmm. things would have been done in Australia nicer. Oh, these Australians are not good at it or sucks, mm. you know, whatever you say. There's pluses and minuses in both systems. Certainly yeah. um, to have the surgery in Australia where, number one, it was free. I mean, my mother paid $5 for parking and complained. Really, we didn't pay a cent for the five weeks in hospital or anything. Wow. Not a single cent. So 100% free. So you only have to worry about your health, not your financial ruin. Okay. And that's a huge pressure off you when you're dealing with these things. Um, but it also felt very impersonal. And I think that, um, I mean, the, the nurses there were not impersonal, but the doctors and the physios, and they're dealing with so many people and they have to keep that barrier just to protect their own mental health. Whereas, so impersonal means like they're not yeah. very empathical or they're not communicating properly yeah. and they were not busy. They will be subjective and... They were communicating properly, but you didn't feel the connection. Whereas when I... So, okay, so for the surgery and before, that was fine. For the treatment and the recovery afterwards, I found that it was missing. So um, when I came here and I dealt with speech therapists and physios, they take you into their heart as their own. They're going to help you get better. Whereas the speech therapist in Australia, I'd be lucky if they remembered my name from week to week, you know. So it's a different thing. I mean, the speech therapist in Australia might be very, um, like have a lot of experience or have certain skills or resources that may or may not be here. Right. Uh, But at the end of the day, the recovery is not just about the skill of the technician and the resources, it's about the motivation of the patient, it's about the positive mindset it's a bit of a more holistic process and I have found recovering in Nepal to be the full package. I have a totally positive story. Absolutely. And that, of course, is just my experience, but I have had, yeah, so much help and including from the phone call that Sanjay made with you and coming back here and you introduced me to the neurosurgeon, Dr. Gopal Sharma. Yeah. Also, Dr. Suman took me to Tilganga. Yeah. And they did every test possible and he brought in some of the top doctors and directors to meet me and I just felt very supported. 
um, just just went the extra mile to help me, and I just I just felt the love from you and Dr. Suman and Sanjay. Of course, my husband was incredibly supportive. Then the main breakthrough, I mean, the main breakthrough that happened in my healing was I was recommended to go to uh, a, a doctor, a speech therapist called Dr. Kaviraj, and he's in Marishkand. And before that, the ENT at MediCity had explained that my vocal cord was in fact paralyzed and it probably wasn't going to come back. Well, it said definitely wasn't going to come back. So I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to eat or speak again. Like I can just whisper and drink smoothies. So then mm, a friend recommended Dr. Kabarat. And when I went to see him, he said, no, 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 I, give me a few weeks and I will have you talking. Give me three months and I'll have you talking as normal. So I went from, we live in Dobigat. I went to Marisgans uh, every day for a week or two and then three or four times a week for another couple of weeks and then a couple of times a week. It, it went like that. So I saw him from December to maybe March or April and he taught me how to speak again. He Basically his theory was, to get the right vocal cord to work harder to come across to make the seal. And as long as you get a seal, you can talk and you can eat. And that's what we did. So we have a world-class professional right in the corner. Absolutely. And I would never have seen a world-class professional like that in Hello, Townsville. we are having a podcast. Kabiraz, thank you very much. You say <laughs> right in the camera, you know, Yeah. I think. <laughs> but yeah. the thing is, we got a world-class people, you know. I mean, thinking Absolutely. and what adds most in the healthcare, okay? Mm-hmm. Amazing family support, undoubtedly, how, how how they go extra miles and everything. But the community, like the way we are, like compassionate, you know, I mean, like we really have that value, which we kind of underscore or we undermine it. We don't really take it as our, you know, um, human connection as a value. I think we have to start building up that as a process of healing where your family, community, and a support mechanics actually functions as a process of uh, therapeutic intervention, as a holistic thing. Vital. Vital. So the problem with uh, we taking a mechanical decision on a patient has been uh, superimposing on a medical field. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a, there's a crowd effect. There's a rush. And then there is like a super speciality kind of thing. We need that because otherwise you wouldn't have had a neurosurgery. No, and I think it has its place in the beginning. Exactly. But then after that, there's so protracted value where you lost your voice, you don't have a independence in doing things like today you are like 100%. But the problem with uh, we uh, healthcare providers have it, we see it through one diagnosis, one intervention, one consultations, one services. We got to get that right. But there is a multiple milestones that one patient need. You know what I mean? As, as, a, as a survivor. So when we see this complex decision making, we actually are handicapped as a human because we don't really want to appreciate that holistically. You know, So now when you see that, we have a healing process, which is like two, three years post-year surgery. We have like immediate rehabilitation, which we are incapacitated, like we are kind of powerful now in that. And then we have a great professionals who can come home and do things like that, which actually help you to be in a comfort and you don't have to rush around. Apart from what, uh, speech therapist you had a struggle with. I think there's a big uh, mind game that Sanjay must have gone through as a husband, mm-hmm. you know, your uh, foundation and pillar. What was it like when he, what do you guys talk today? I mean, looking, <laughs> at, the, looking at the things back. I mean, I think that he's still scared. Like if I get, you know, and sick if I get a stomach thing or, or anything. He, He's like, on his toes. I'll take you to Medi City Emergency Department. <laughs> I was like, I'm okay. <laughs> but yeah, he's certainly um, quite scared as a result and very careful. And and that's paid off too because our neighbor, son-in-law, had a um, aneurysm during the pandemic. Oh. And they called Sanjay. He went over. So Dr. Sanjay. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, he never would have been like this before. He was so happy-go-lucky. So the only symptom that this guy was doing was he was throwing up. 
Oh. But he'd had a headache in the afternoon. He was flying kites, and so they thought he'd just been looking up too much. And Sanjay said, "This is neurological. We go to Medicity now." And it was. It was an aneurysm. Oh my god! And I don't know how he knew, um, but yeah, he saved his life basically. So he's very much on his toes now, whereas previously he was like, "Ah, nothing's a problem," because he was young, and that's that's how you experience youth. You think life's forever. So has he gone through uh, stress and uh, been? Uh, so he's he, he's always been same. His voice tone is same. Mm-hmm. I always find him in same mood, smiley, happy yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. But that has taken a lot on him, you know. Yeah, but he's always been that same happy, same calm guy. He handles things in that way. He's that. very even teal, even killed. I think is the word. Yeah, very balanced. And um, able to handle that level of stress, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't, you know, impact on him. And he hasn't expressed it in terms of like, you know, he's so glad that we came through it, and he still worries, and he does express it, but it doesn't show in any way. He doesn't get depressed, no. or he doesn't get anxious or frustrated. Like that how, doesn't. How did Ataya go through? She was about ten at the time, yeah. and it was up and down. You know, my sisters did a lot to help. They made some huge present box that they hid under my bed in the hospital. So every time she went, she got to open and take one present out. So she was least concerned what mummy was doing in the bed because she was under the bed looking at the present box. And they took her to, you know, the museum and aquarium and all these things to distract her, found her little friends like in Townsville that she could go play with and, Took her for ice cream. Yeah. I remember one day I, I was out of hospital between the operations and they said, shall we pick mummy up? And she said, no, she'll only let me have one scoop. <laughs> so, you know, on that level she was fine. Yeah. But on another level it got frustrating. She was dislocated and um, in limbo. She didn't know when she'd be going back to school in Nepal and nobody could give her an answer to that. So... After the second operation, five weeks in hospital, her and Sanjay visited me nearly every day. And towards the end of that, she was expressing her discontent with that and throwing some tantrums and doing what any 10-year-old would do. So not easy for her, definitely. Not easy for both of them because Sanjay would have to handle that as basically a single parent. Yeah. Mm. There, There was a huge dip in the family mm. you know there was like a lot of uncertainty mm. um, that's probably low but do you recall anything that has a lowest part in the whole mm. story and it's lasted for nearly two years i suppose right? mm. so two years of a constant every day of a stress and um, you know i don't think besides the first day when i cried after hearing the diagnosis and then that night, and my older sister knows what to say to calm me down and she's a lawyer and she'll put something in some sort of technical terms and she'll have me convinced that it's okay. And I let her do it. I knew she was doing it. So she just calmed me down until I did the MRI, saw the doctor, and then once I knew and I'd cried and then seen the neurosurgeon who told me what was happening, then after that i knew it's like okay i either live or die now i know yeah so now i have to decide like if i die is that okay i'm not going to spend like the next i think it was three weeks to my operation panicking i can't live like that so i'm gonna have to decide now that it's okay so i sat and thought about that it's like okay so i've done all this i'm at the time i was 48 yeah it's like okay if i die now the biggest regret will be my daughter, yeah? So, of course, we try to hang on, but we all die sometimes, so I'm going to have to just accept that. Mm-hmm. That that Once that's done, and I think everyone who has a serious illness has to go through that, once that's done, everything else is just logistics. Yes. So um, then when the surgery happened, I can remember the neurosurgeon after the second surgery and I had 
the facial palsy, which he was very, you could see he was very disappointed that that had happened because they'd put sensors on the facial nerve so that they didn't touch them. None of those sensors had gone off. So he said, we didn't touch them, we didn't cut them, and we've done, they've done nerve um, tests on it. That yeah. It's not cut, it never was cut. He said, but just sometimes being exposed to the air for 10 hours, the nerves are angry and they're just like, we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to play the game. We've, we've stopped working. Oh. So he said, then, then it's like um, the nerves could come back but the brain is a funny thing. Once you don't use something, the real estate gets taken over by something else. Yeah. So then your brain is not sending the signal to the nerves. So it's not that the nerves aren't working, but the brain is not sending the signal. So yeah, he was very, I mean, he never said it, but you could just see on his face again, he was devastated that I had facial palsy. And I just remember looking at him saying, oh my goodness, like in my grandmother's day or even my dad's day, this would have been game over. You've just saved my life. I've got facial palsy. Like, move on. There's a second doctor down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I'm, I'm treating the doctors as we go through. They're treating me. I'm treating them. They, they, they really get vulnerable. You know, I mean, like this. It's really so, hard. Yeah. It's, it's terrible, like yeah. terrifying to have that because we know a lot oh. how it how it sits. Like, so for example, the voice not there. For example, the hearing is impaired. The, the thing is like the, oh. the facial palsy is consistent and strong. You feel sorry, you know, I mean, mm. like if you really feel you're passionate because see the profession that we are part of is is about a human suffering. And when you understand suffering, it's also a solution. You know, mm. that's what we treat. And solution comes with that part of like, can we eradicate it? You know, mm. take off that burden. And that's our success. You know, that's our mm. uh, who we are about. And that makes uh, doctors and especially surgeons and other who are crucial uh, decision makings on a, a curing part makes super vulnerable. The mm. diagnosis day, you think mm. the patient's only vulnerable, the good doctors are super vulnerable mm -hmm. because they're sitting with a diagnosis with a forecast of the five years. Imagine, mm. you know what I mean? So you, you were called as a unicorn, right? By mm. the, what was that uh, incident? The, there was a facial therapy uh, physiotherapist in Sydney that I did a Zoom consult with just before the pandemic. And I think it had been, it was a third year after my operation, third year running. And I asked her, will it ever come back? And she said, at this stage, no. But there are some unicorns. <laughs> I was like, okay. So that means it can come back. So my interpretation of that is it can come back. But I think... You know, what happens in Australia is if you can't speak or eat, if you, this vocal cord, this, you can inject Botox, you can have an operation. So I don't think that the speech therapists do what Kabiraj did because here that's maybe not the preferred option so people would do the work. <laughs> so I did the work. You know, I went to Maharaj Ganj every day for a number of weeks and every other day until three months. So I did the work and I made it work, Yeah. yeah. And the same with the facial palsy. I think if I was younger and maybe had a career and I had to speak in front of my colleagues or my, like my sister, she's a lawyer, I have to go to court, perhaps I would have been more concerned about the facial palsy, particularly the functional aspects, not being able to see properly, blinking, using eye drops, and uh, not being able to articulate clearly. Yeah. And also people are shocked. They're like, do a double take so maybe i would have felt conscious so in australia they rush to do the operation to fix it they can do a couple of different procedures including taking a nerve from the leg and connecting it up to that side yeah. and you get a natural smile yeah. so they were suggesting that i come back and do that and if i didn't do that then after a year or so there's another procedure they could do so there's there's the first procedure, the most natural smile is within the first six months or a year. I can't remember. So I was talking to this physiotherapist in Sydney on Zoom about that. And she was recommending I come to Sydney and meet these particular doctors and make this decision. Then the pandemic happened, so I couldn't go. Yeah. So then I had to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where Dr. Amir came in, the physio that I'm still seeing about my facial palsy. Okay. Because He's, it's just a miracle what he's done. Um, Who's he? His, his name is Dr. Amir uh, Nupani. Uh -huh. 
Yeah. I never use his last name. Dr. Amir. Yeah. He said Asha Physio uh-huh. in Nortang Plaza in Jalakal. Okay. And so I went to see him after the pandemic. The pandemic was a big break. I couldn't see anyone. Yeah. But I was still doing my exercises at home, like try to smile, lift your eyebrow, scrunch your eyes. And when the nerves aren't talking to the brain, nothing's happening as you do all of that. So it mm-hmm. seems like, why am I bothering to do this? Yeah. But um, one of the reasons that you're bothering is that even if you're not actually moving, if you're saying smile, but not trying to smile, you're telling your brain to send the message. So if you continue to try and make the, that pathway, the brain may form a new pathway. Yeah. Because the brain is plastic, as you would know. Yeah. yeah? yeah. So um, I was meditating, doing, trying to send the signal to my smile. So I think it was in the third year, August of the third year, that I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, there's a small crease you know, I can get a small movement. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, at the time I put it down to the fact that I was meditating. I, I'd said to myself, six weeks, meditate, six weeks, give it a big push, you know. And it was at the end of that that this happened. But whether it was because of that or not, we'll never know because sometimes these things just happen. Yeah. yeah. But I was, I mean, maybe I should take the word meditation out of it and just say I was focusing because there's very seldom times when you would shut your eyes and really focus. You'd need quiet. and So we don't do that. And when I was doing these facial exercises in the West, there's a lot of noise and there's the lady talking and there's no focus. You know, you're trying to smile and you're doing what they're saying and you go through the motions, but you're not actually thinking about it and clearing your mind and sending that message from the brain to the nerves. So so anyway, that was my thing. That's what I was doing, and I was, and I got this first movement there. You, you look great in a sense, like what you went through. You know, all well, this. You saw me before. It's yeah, a yeah, yeah. Radical difference. Radical. It's like yeah. it's shifted. Like the way yeah. the face and then the stress in your one side of your cheek was mm. phenomenal. I said, like this lady lost that integrity of the mm. facial muscles. You know, mm. and I thought, like, okay. Maybe, you know, you don't know, I mean, how much uh, things are going to get improved. But I think the positivity of your mindset in your healing process mm-hmm. is something we don't talk. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like we don't we don't have time to bother about. We have more mm-hmm. blood tests to do things. That, so that healing is something left out to individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to do your arithmetics. One plus one equals to two, two. Oh, I see the two. I'm going to go for mm-hmm. one more. One more step, you know. I'm I'm gonna mm. get better on it. So that stamina is not is a conversation. So the thing mm. for me when I see the healing processes, you can support. Like for example, whoever did a physiotherapy is supported. But that internal wisdom, which comes from okay, I'm making a micro improvement. Mm. You know, micro improvement. That small smirk is mm. noticeable. Mm. You know, I can smile to you. Yeah. Especially, I'll make it a little romantic. I can smile to your joke, Sanjay. Mm. That's a million dollar thing, you know. You cannot, you cannot take away mm. a piece of that moment from people's life. Mm. It's beautiful, you know. So the thing is that that micro improvements on patients is not talked about. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't really talk. Like you know, you got to do that positivity because. Till the time, see, what you said about, like, I'm going to die. Oh, okay, so what's the regret? Like, you know, mm. the, the arithmetics is there in the life. Every nature being perishes. That's the part. But there is a process to be better in a life, which is a kind of choice and privilege we have. You know, I think you did a brilliant job. And I'm trying to narrate it for the people who are going to see and say, mm. hey, I mean, I'm not doing that. Maybe I should give okay. it a try. What is your micro improvement today? And you narrated it as a flow, as you as an organic individual. Mm. You didn't narrate it as a schematic, you know, how therapeutic uh, healing can take a place. It can be a meditation. It can be self-reflection. You know, it can be a focus on what you want to achieve. And there can be an inherent body that will be speaking out on improvements, provided there's a natural space to do it. So that healing processes has a, 
um, milestones and it is smaller it's mm. not big like you are not getting big but look at you today today your swallowing is okay you're getting a normal diet and you have a absolutely normal 100% susan so it took you nearly 3 years to come back to get back to your job and get the things done no i i started working a month after my operation because i work at home on my computer wow so one thing was my operation took away my ability to walk speak eat everything yeah but i could still edit documents oh. and i was like oh i can still do this and i i i love what i do okay so of course i didn't do much yeah and i had some pretty supportive um clients who gave me little jobs to sort of get back into it yeah um, that's so sweet yeah so, so that was there so that process of maintaining job and mm. being unwell how did mm. it go like was it's it it's great because i mean everyone needs to feel valuable everyone needs to do something so that it's not sitting there feeling sorry for themselves but also i just what what you said made me think of something that i want to share oftentimes whether we're happy in life is um simply whether our expectations have been met right and that has really been something that i think if i'd stayed in australia i wouldn't have noticed because you have the cultural expectations you'll have a job you'll get married you'll have a house you'll do this you'll have free healthcare yeah you know you have all these expectations and they're mostly met and if something doesn't get met you'll you'll complain but coming to nepal i married my husband i live with his mother and all of a sudden i've got something that didn't meet my expectations i didn't expect to live with my in-laws she didn't expect to have a foreign buhari yeah mhm so then was it a case she never expected to have like a foreigner as a daughter-in-law oh okay so all of a sudden both of our expectations are not met so how do we move forward yeah you know you could complain you could say oh my daughter-in-law doesn't come in the kitchen and make the dalbat and and i could complain oh i have to take my mother-in-law to the doctor I, you know our expectations aren't met it wasn't what we thought we would have in life right but neither of us did that thankfully both of us are incredibly happy with the new situation and we've been living together i think more than maybe 18 years i've been living with her so she's great i love her but uh the that adjustment it's very easy then to blame everything that goes wrong in your life on the fact that your expectation wasn't met and that this isn't happening how you wanted it to so be so you're calling it adjustment thing yeah and it was the same with my brain tumor that's why i'm mentioning it because this adjustment we our life is going on a path yeah. and it gets Flip. sidetracked exactly and a lot of people never make that adjustment and it, it is an adjustment all the time it's like why do you think you have a right to perfect health why do you think you have a right to live how you thought you were going to live from you know or have the job that you thought you were going to have or have the relationship you thought you were going to have so if you can't make the adjustment to what is real then you'll sit there and and be angry or discontented with what you have because it's not what you expected that you would have right so the thing is adjustment micro improvement yeah. you know adjustment so for example you born brought up in australia you got a very western lifestyle and food and culture and priorities education everything suddenly you're in nepal you got a huge transition you're in, you're in a life cycle suddenly you get a diagnosis huge transition so there are major transitions in life that happens that's an adjustment that you kind of accept the situation and try to go with the flow whatever mm. your choices are and try to make best out of it mm. right that's the positive outlook but then in between that there is a everyday struggle with uh, yes. with that uh, whole process right improvements be it a relationship with a person like for mm. example you you said like uh, your in-law you know mm. this is a huge thing you know you grew up in a nuclear family you try to move out from a families mm. and be you, with your loved one and smaller family as a nuclear family but that's that's something improved every day because of the both parties interest mm. you know everybody's interest was there to make mm. it happen you know yeah 
So I'm not being, um, and that we are very good at. Mm. Frankly, this country has a great value. Yeah, I agree. Making yeah. adjustments, Nepalis are so good at it. Yeah, especially moving out from country is perfect. Uh. It suits us. But you know, moving into the country is very uh. difficult. Yeah. But still, you guys are making the best out of it. But the thing is, now there is another part. Like we need when we talk about healing. This time we are talking about healing, and then that holistic outlook, that compassion, that empathy from the professionals that you engage with. I also talked about the vulnerability of the physicians and doctors and surgeons, how they go through that. And they fail. They literally think they failed in this case. But there's a sweet outcome that you as a person to celebrate that, mm. you know. And these conversations, these podcasts are about the celebrations of the success, individual successes. And it's a huge, it's a huge success for your sister, for your doctors, for your family, for friends like us, you know, a lot of people. And you matter. That individual life matters. It's such a philosophical quote, you know. And it has to be dealt individually. And that individual case studies and stories and conversations will become invaluable. And I think uh, we have to look positively on things that you said. It's such a learning. And any, any, any individual should understand that adjustment in life choices are always there. Improvements are always possible because you didn't draft your diagnosis, you know. You didn't draft that the process that you'll go through. But you always look forward to next day, a better day. And there is always unpredictability. Susan didn't write it down like how, how the outcome would be. But she had an outcome outlook that, you know. And I didn't expect that I will be uh, talking in a podcast, but I'm okay. But then I am trying to make it the best out of it by requesting people who would matter to other people. And those conversations are going to last long. I think like we really try to pull it. I, th I think in that note, we can end this conversation. And thank you for sharing all these journeys. I really feel that we can always look back to this as an archival content and um, uh, you know human libraries we create. And we have been... I think champion in so many things in community health that we feel proud about. This is a new thing. And we can create these stories out of common people's life, you know, and make it really uh, something that we can go through on different kind of conversations and so try to find template, you know. These conversations are every day in a different way. So I think we, we kind of did a first conversation in a pure English, end-to-end and I think uh, it justifies. It justifies for the folks who ever want to get a little bit of healing on a mind game, on the humbleness of the life, that how it humbles everyone. Or the caretakers, the you know, physicians, the families, the husbands, the wife, anyone. And that stakeholding is not often talked about in books. Somewhere we have to start talking. So I think there is... Um, that's the success of Susa, <laughs> and uh, it's your uh, your family's success that they stood by all these values and kept on doing it, and also success of your uh, support uh, team and the surgeons and everyone. We really want to thank everyone who was involved in all this journey, and there will be a lot more to learn from you and people like you guys. And I think there will be a lot more learning for the people who are going to listen and, and try to understand how to manage their sufferings. So looking forward to more conversations and thank you for opening this avenue. Thank you for having me. If anything that you want to say, survivors, how mm. they should look into the life, if you have any philosophy or mantras that you said about adjustment, mm. is there anything that is parting note? There's one thing, like I think... The second day after my, maybe it was the third day after my second operation and I couldn't speak, move, do anything, couldn't see, had an iPad. I can remember Sanjay played me some music. It was Richard Bonner. He's fantastic. Uh -huh. And I remember for that minute I forgot I was in the hospital. I was enjoying it so much. And then after that minute I thought, ah, that's the key. You know what? I can still enjoy things. 
So enjoy small things. Yeah, just look for those moments of joy. You can still enjoy them through the whole process. You talk about outcomes, it's such a doctor thing. Think of the process. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. takeaway. Thank you so much, Susan. Mm. And I hope you enjoy, enjoyed the conversation. I did very much so. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank mm. you so much. All right.